and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, uh, Coppola cast season, quarantine, social isolation, shelter in place edition. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly. All right. And if we sound different, it's because we are social distance podcasting, uh, using the internet here to communicate with each other about movies. Yeah, we're, we're using that Zoom thing, but we're just taking the audio instead, so that way you don't have to see us in our pajamas, just like in our unclean house. Yeah, there's not a lot uh, visually interesting going on here. You don't want to watch just uh, extreme close-ups of our two faces for an hour. I don't know, maybe people are lonely and they need that right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, listen to our soothing voices. We might have interesting character actor faces, you know? I think Zoom adds about 20 pounds to my face. I didn't realize you grow a beard again. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't know that I had a beard until I saw myself on my computer. So I don't, I've never heard of this Zoom thing until this whole uh, thing has happened because everyone was using Skype, which was terrible because I could never get it to work. And it always took like 40 minutes of any meeting of people trying to figure it out. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, hey, let's Zoom since we can't see each other. I'm like, what's that? And it's like the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, I heard about Zoom because I heard that's how uh, a lot of people were going to be doing their Passover seders. Oh. Yeah. Did you do an Easter thing via Zoom? No. This okay. is actually the inaugural usage of Zoom. Okay. For me. Congratulations. <laughs> On Easter, I just ate, uh, you know, Cadbury cream egg and just, that, that's all I did because they didn't have Passion of the Christ or Last Temptation of the Christ. Or Life of Brian on Netflix. So I just kind of went empty-handed. Maybe next year. What? Good movies? Not on Netflix? You're crazy. So today we are doing The Rain People, which I was, I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. Because I, I think a lot of people, and I, me included, consider this sort of like the first real couple of movie. Like this, to me, this felt like this is the, the beginning of the true the one that we know, the reason why we were excited to do this podcast in the first place. So I'm excited to get into it. But first, I was smart enough to get liquor delivered to my house. So I got a, a bottle of the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection, Blue Label Merlot 2016. As always, I'm going to read the back of the bottle, make AJ jealous that he didn't think of getting this delivered. So Next I did time, not think ahead. Coordinate next time I'll get two delivered and then I'll drop one off on your doorstep and then run to my car and call and say that he's... All right, so dramatic style, vibrant packaging, and fruit-forward smooth wines are the signatures Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Merlot has fragrant notes of plums, currants, and the word I always say wrong, anise, is that right? <laughs> it's the one that tastes like licorice. Let's just say anise. Uh, with lively flavors of blueberry pie, cherries, and toasted oak. Delicious with beef tenderloin, grilled lamb chops, or aged cheeses. Learn more about our wines at francisfordcopolawinery.com. Uh, it's pretty good. I definitely agree that it has a fruity taste. Mmm. Yeah, pretty good. So what are you drinking, AJ, since you don't have the Coppola wine? What do you got? I am drinking a Manhattan... Just uh, blended scotch, sweet vermouth, uh, some blood orange bitters, and ice, of course, and the cherry, too. Um, 
Aren't you supposed to serve it straight up? I wanted I wanted it chilled, so I threw some ice in there, shook it up in the shaker. That's, how many dashes of bitters do you do? Probably too many. I know a dash <laughs> is a specific measurement, uh, and I just like tilt the bottle in and then try to tip it back as quickly as possible. All right, so it's I guess it's my turn to describe the plot of the rain people, which I'm very excited because the last of the harder descriptions is I'm happy to have a more this 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 movie more straightforward than a Finian's Rainbow. All right, so here's here's the plot. It's very it's very simple. So there's this lady named Natalie, played by Shirley Knight. Uh, you might recognize her from Paul Blart Mall Cop and Grandma's Boy. Uh, uh, also recently passed away like two days ago. And little yeah. do we know, lived the next town over, lived in San Marcos. So what, what are the chances of that? But so this lady, Natalie, uh, has recently gotten married and then just decides, I don't want to be around my husband. I'm going to drive as far away from him as possible. And I am pregnant and I don't care. And so it basically turns into one of those kind of road trip, a road trip movie based. It is a road trip movie. And she, it's just her kind of going to different rest stops and you know, things you go on a road trip, like a fake uh, old West town and a gas station and a diner. Um, and she picks up a hitchhiker played by James Kahn, Jimmy the Dream, James Kahn. Uh, and his name is Kil- Kilgannon. Is that right? Kil- Kilgannon. Yeah. Jimmy yep. Killer Kilgannon. Jimmy Kil- Killer Kilgannon. And he is a basically a brain-damaged uh, football player who uh, got his uh, – got, you know, got uh, what we now know is, is problems that all football players have. Was got hit too many times, bad brain damage, got a really bad tackle or whatever, and was basically demoted to guy who rakes leaves at school. And then they didn't like him to do that, so they paid him – they gave him $1,000 and said – Get out of here and just go, go away. Uh, and so then he's on the road just trying to find a new life and a new job. And basically, uh, these two people, like, she, she picks him up hoping that, like, oh, this is a handsome guy. I'm going to score with this guy. And then realizes pretty quick, oh, I don't think this is cool because there's something, like, this guy is clearly, like, mentally retarded because of his brain damage. And so the rest of the movie is her kind of trying to get rid of him and realizing that she with him and can't because they're all the people that she keeps trying to pass them off to are just terrible people so like she takes him to um this his old girlfriend from high school and she's like get this idiot out of my house this guy's brain damage i hate him so she's like okay you can't come there and then she's like i found you a job finally and takes him to one of those roadside reptile like awful probably not legal like fake zoos where it's just like you know like coyotes in a cage and a bunch of like chick for some reason it has a bunch of chickens bunch of chickens and then the guy working there is clearly very shady because he's like i'll take your money uh kindly mentally retarded man i put it in my safe i'll, I'll take care of your money and i'll pay you like eight dollars a week or whatever and so then uh the shirley knight character is like okay that's not cool uh but she leaves reluctantly being like well, but i want to get rid of this guy gets pulled over by a handsome studly cop played by robert duvall uh, who for some reason always plays lots of Southerners, even though he's from New York, but he's like cast, he's a cowboy in most movies. So he's a New Yorker, I believe. I think he's a New York actor, but has always played Southern. He does as good at the accent. Uh, and then she, she goes on a date with him. Uh, it does not go well because Robert Duvall likes to beat up his daughter. And then 
is tries to beat up the lady, and then it ends tragically uh, with uh, Jimmy, Jimmy the killer showing up, and uh, bad bad things happen in the end. So that, that's the plot of the movie, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Did I leave anything out? That's no, it. that's uh, that's it. We'll get into specifics. Yeah, I want to mention now before I forget that Robert Duvall's daughter in the movie is maybe the best character in the movie by far the most exciting she's a precocious like 11 12 year old foul mouth girl who uh just like berates robert duvall and uh and you know what he deserves it um i I remember first hearing about this movie when i watched in the 90s that pbs american cinema documentary it was hosted by john lithgow do you remember that show no Right, and if and I don't think it's ever been put on DVD, and I think it's on VHS, and maybe it's on YouTube. But like, if anyone can find this, it was great. It was like in the early '90s, like maybe probably ninety. I want to say like '93, maybe '92, '93. PBS was like, we're gonna make the history of cinema. Like this is we're gonna do like a ten-part series, but it was broken up by genre, which was interesting. So they did like an hour of comedy, an hour of hmm. this. But then once they were done with genre. They did an episode of New Hollywood, the 70s New Hollywood guys. And it covered like the people that you, it was Scorsese, Spielberg, Brian De Palma, uh, and Coppola. And I remember them showing uh, some of the shots from the rain people of them talking and you see like the water pelting the, the windshield of their driving. And I remember thinking like, that looks so weird and interesting. I can't wait to watch that movie someday. And here I am finally at age 40 watching that, <laughs> watching that. Yeah, I really liked it. I it was it, it you couldn't get a movie more opposite than Finian's Rainbow, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, um, I really didn't like this movie. <laughs> I liked the I liked the style. I liked the filmmaking. Um, the like kind of minimalist, uh, almost handheld um, aesthetic to it. I really like the use of flashbacks, like just quick snippets and flashbacks while a character is describing their backstory or it'll show you what they're thinking about. Uh, I like the score, which like all films of this time is like this folk-ish inspired score with like acoustic guitars and soft flutes and vocalizing. But the actual story I did not care for. There wasn't much story though. Is that why I didn't care for it? It was too too minimal. Uh yeah, I suppose cuz I'm thinking it's it's uh people, well, really just Shirley Knight on this cross-country journey of uh like self uh self-actualization or uh, those tend to not end well for anybody. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Like this definitely is grouped into like an easy writer, even Bonnie and Clyde, those movies, like late sixties movies of road trips that end poorly. Yeah. It, it's funny that you mentioned easy rider. Cause while I was watching this, I kept thinking that this reminds me of easy rider. It's two people on a cross country trip searching for something. They're not sure what they just don't know. They want to, they know they don't want to go back to where they were. They just have to keep going forward, but they don't know where or for how or for how long. Yeah. 
Like, I, it doesn't have the clear goal that the later road trip, like, Fairly Brothers movies have, where you know where they need to go and what the plan is. <laughs> They're not as aimless. Yeah, like the, like, uh, in those Fairly Brothers road trip movies. Which are all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all their, even Green Book and Dumb and Dumber. They're the same movie. Guys driving, they drive to a place. <laughs> Well, let's take Dumb and Dumber. They're traveling across the country to go to a specific place for a specific reason. And then the third act of the movie is them there and their adventure continues. And like Easy Rider and Rain People, the the destination doesn't really matter because the characters don't know what they're searching for. So the whole thing is just a journey, which I could be into, I guess, just with um, the mental state of... Uh, James Kahn's character and you really feel like well I mean I guess how I felt uh shifted with uh, Natalie's perspective like she has to take care of this guy but she also feels like uh straddled with him mm-hmm. um and I was just thinking this this isn't going to end well like it can't end well mm-hmm. yeah it can't I think that's a, that's a big thing with the new Hollywood stuff too, is most of those movies don't end well. That was such, that's why there's the term, the seventies ending. The seventies ending is it either doesn't end well or it's a nebulous ending, which is still dissatisfying. We're just like, I don't know that we don't know. That's like, um, there's a lot of movies in, in this time. Uh, like to have, that's how they, they didn't like to wrap things up in a good way or at all. Um, yeah, and I, I, I like that, but I, I, it just didn't work for me here, and maybe I can articulate that as we go on. I guess the 70s ending, is that maybe what I think of as the Michael Caine ending? There was a time when all of Michael Caine's movies ended with someone shooting him randomly at the end of the movie. He would go through the whole plot, wrap everything up, and then someone would run up and just shoot him. <laughs> end of movie. Yeah, it was a you know it was a hard time Vietnam you know Nixon it was it was not fun time for America unlike now. <laughs> it, it was I didn't know going in this that James Caan was in it I didn't I didn't know he had worked with him before The Godfather I didn't know the Coppola like so it's interesting to see because his next movie he directed is going to be The Godfather, and that both had Robert Duvall and James Caan in it and in this movie James Caan feels so young. And in The Godfather, he does not feel like he's still a young man, but he feels more like a man in that one. And that's only like three years after this movie or two or three years after this. So it's just really interesting. I didn't even recognize him at first because he's kind of not pudgy, but he's got still like baby fat, kind of like, he still kind of looks like a, a kid in a way. Yeah, and he also has a buzz cut. His, his head is almost practically shaved. Yeah, uh, yeah this was one of James Caan's first substantial roles robert duvall had been a character actor doing like twilight zone episodes and you know he was boo radley in to kill a mockingbird in what 61 or 62 this was like the first movie where those guys got big substantial roles mm-hmm. uh coppola actually wrote this film for shirley knight interesting yeah he wrote it with her in mind as the main character how did he know? Did he know her or just seen her in other movies and was just like, I like this lady. I want to make a movie with She's a Star. Uh, she had been a working actress, so he had seen her act and stuff. But they, according to what I read, he met her at a film festival and 
just liked her and decided to like write a movie with her as the lead which is interesting because then on set they did not get along and had creative differences over how to take the character uh, so in, in Coppola's uh sort of screenplay i'll get into that in a minute he imagined the character is like a wholly sympathetic caring person who is just like determined to take care of a uh, killer kilgannon but shirley knight wanted to do like a more complicated complex character yeah he didn't agree with that and after a certain point he says uh like later on he in his career he said with uh like with regret he just kind of left her alone to do her own thing and stopped working with her on the character <laughs> which is why i feel like her moods shift so like dramatically just like all of a sudden now she's really mean to <laughs> to kill her and then oh now she's back to being really nice and caring for him which i think would have not worked if it if if it wasn't a road movie, but because it's a road movie, you can kind of like drop in and out and people's emotions can change and it doesn't feel too strange. At least for me, I was just like, okay, she's in a bad mood now or she's in a happy mood now. And also she's pregnant. So you're just like, okay, I can believe this shift in, uh, you know, the way she's acting. Um, and I thought James Conn's pretty good, but I, I think is it's weird because I'm used to like the wisecracking kind of like smart ass James Conn, like, Kind of the wise guy, James Conn, like the James yeah, that's um, the Godfather of Bottle Rocket, that kind of like kind of the big presence that he usually brings in his movies, which is why we all remember him. And then this one is him playing a really quiet and like you know more of a like a really subtle performance, like still good, but it's it's interesting. That it's like this is in my mind the only time he's ever played a character like this. And after this, he's more like the wise guy, James Conn. Yeah, that became his whole like screen persona was the tough wise guy. Yeah. Uh, and here he's a very sweet, innocent, kind-hearted person. Um, and you get the sense that he was like that before his accident. And now since his accident, he is just uh, sort of blankly like that, uh, just kind of trusting anyone he encounters. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. And, it, and it, his character plays into that genre of sexy, mentally challenged person, like uh, <laughs> Tim with Mel Gibson. I don't know if you've ever seen Tim, with Mel, where Mel Gibson plays a uh, mentally uh, challenged person, but who's sexy. And of course, Bill and Bill on his own with Mickey Rooney. Um, <laughs> the, this, I, li I really liked like how art artsy, and experimental the filmmaking was in this. And I feel like you got a taste of it in Finning's Rainbow, just a little bit. Like we talked about, like there's a few shots and they're like, that's interesting and weird. But this one is him full on. Like you can tell this is the movie that he really wanted to make. I think it was the first movie of his, of Coppola's, where this is the movie he wanted to make 100%, other than, you know, you argue with the actor or whatever, but like this was his vision. This doesn't feel like a studio interference sort of thing. It feels like, it's part of that new wave of filmmakers just going out there and making stuff very different than what Hollywood had been making or was making. And I loved <clears throat> all the shots, like the, like the long shot of her talking in the phone booth to her husband is really good where the camera kind of slowly pushes in. 
And the part when Shirley Knight realizes that James Caan is a brain damaged man, it's all shot pointed towards a mirror. And you kind of don't realize it's a mirror until they enter the frame and you just see their legs. And, and like, that was like a nice long take of that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. I love that. I, uh, I, that's such a great uh, visual in the movie. I also love when that particular shot composition is used. It reminded me of, uh, of masculine feminine uh, Jean-Luc Godard's film from 1966 has a lot of scenes of characters talking to each other around mirrors. So you'll see one character talking to someone, their reflection is in the mirror, and they're just kind of uh, asking them questions, almost interviewing them. And that's what uh, was happening in that scene. She was asking Killer uh, questions about his background. And it's it fits. Like Godard was the new the new wave in France, and that had now filtered over into America for the American new wave, AKA the new Hollywood with a yeah. new young filmmaker. Yeah, it was, and, it, and it was very fun when they drive past the drive-in and it's showing Bonnie and Clyde. You're like, yep, here we are. This is, now we're in the new era. Like Finian's rainbow feels like a million miles behind us now that we're in the rain people. Um, and, uh, it, it, it like it remind it's like I love road trip movies seventies one especially like I love Tulane Blacktop I love Electric Glide and Blue like just people driving in this weird uh, aimless world I love newer not newer but, but movies later like that like I love a, like this movie kind of remind me of Brown Bunny a little bit where it's like it's a lot of driving and then just kind of talking to people alongside the road um, and it just this it was I think if it didn't have the good actors in it it wouldn't be as good maybe. But because it has three very solid, you know, experts at acting, <laughs> and it, it raised it above. They kept it from feeling too aimless for me. Like seeing, like just watching the performances from these people. Like, like Robert Duvall does that great thing where you you hate him, but you also kind of love him. Like it's just like he's not a bad guy, but he's not a good guy. Like he's very, he's really good at playing those kind of difficult uh, characters. Um, and yeah, I just, it was very, the whole thing felt very grounded in reality in, in a way. Like it didn't, it, like this is the first couple of movie that felt like it was like real drama. Like there it didn't, none of it felt too silly to me. Even when they go to like the reptile ranch thing, I was just like, it just felt believable. Like all of it felt very believable. The, uh, the reptile ranch scene was, was tough to get through because it goes on so long watching the uh, zookeeper tell James Caan, how he's gonna help him out, aka cheat him out of, out of his money. And it's like, oh God, oh God, oh God. And then <laughs> Shirley Knight leaves and it's like, oh, Jimmy Caan is stuck there. And then when she goes back, you find out that James Caan through accident or probably intention, I think, has decided to let all the animals out of their cages. And the guy's zoo is totally ruined now. And it's like, okay, good. This is not at all what I thought the movie was going to be like. I thought, for some reason, I didn't know it was a road trip movie. And I didn't know it was going to be so, um, I didn't know it had the weird, sweet relationship between uh, Shirley Knight and James Caan. I thought it was going to be a little more, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting, but uh, I, I really liked it. I'm sorry that you did not.
Um, yeah. is, is this the first movie to have American Zoetrope as like the main company in front of it? Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. It is the first American Zoetrope uh, produced film. He made the company sort of while this was going on. And then THX 1138 will be the first film like totally made through American Zoetrope. And it was cool to see George Lucas in the credits as a PA. Production is- associate. <laughs> uh, from what I read in Francis Ford Coppola, A Filmmaker's Life by Michael Schumacher, uh, which I've been using as sort of a guide throughout this podcast. Uh, Lucas was basically, I mean, if you wanted to be unkind, you'd say he was the gopher. If, <laughs> but more accurately, I think he's a lot more like, uh, like Kubrick's uh, uh, assistant who just kind of did anything and everything and was a lot more vital to the production than just, uh, you know, like a random gopher. And also while in between helping out with shots and getting things set up, uh, Coppola, or sorry, Lucas was writing THX 1138 uh, at night. Very interesting. I always thought, I mistakenly thought that Lucas and Coppola knew each other from film school. I didn't realize it was like while making movies together that is how they met. I didn't, I, for some reason, I thought they were just pals from, from school, but not true. I wonder how, like, it's interesting because, like, all, a lot of these guys, I think, are still friends, like, as old men. And I wonder, like, how it grew from, like, these two guys. Like, when did Spielberg show up and became pals with them? Like, what was the introduction of Spielberg to them or Scorsese? Like, when did they decide, like, oh, we're the guys making the really good movies. Let's all be friends and help each other out with our, with our movies. Like, I wonder, like, when that all started gelling together as like we're the we're the guys and we're pals uh have you ever read easy riders raging bulls or seen the documentary uh it's about that basically like it's it's ostensibly about the filmmaking industry but it focuses mainly on the directors and writers and actors involved so it's a lot more about their personal lives and gets a bit gossipy but always in like a fun entertaining way and it's about yeah these young kids as filmmakers who would hang out and they all had their individual groups like there was the west coast guys and that was lucas and coppola and john milius and margot kidder was in there and then a few years later this kid steven spielberg shows up and he's like hey guys like want to hang out and driving this like flashy orange trans am and they're like who's this kid and the <laughs> east coast guys were like scorsese and paul schrader de palma yeah, yeah de palma it's a real interesting reads uh seeing how they actually interacted with each other and how their personalities complemented with each other and clashed and whatnot and who fell out with who uh, from what I've read in this book, Lucas and Coppola maintain that they always have been friends and are still friends, and that they their supposed falling out during uh, THX 1138 when the studio was cutting it up, and the uh, story is that Lucas was upset that Coppola wasn't fighting for Lucas's vision, and Coppola was upset that Lucas couldn't see like the financial bottom line 
that if the movie didn't do well, it would tank American Zoetrope. But they said that uh, both have said separately that all that was kind of blown out of proportion and they were still friends during that whole time and were friends afterwards and are still friends. It's also, this is also Walter Murch's first uh, real movie, who was the guy who did, he did the sound for all the great movies, basically. Like this was the first listed sound montage, but then he went on to do uh, THX and American Graffiti and The Conversation and The Godfather Part Two: Apocalypse Now, you know, like on and on, like he is considered, you know, one of the great, you know, sound guys. And also um, an editor, he, Walter Murch was also an editor and worked on, um, you know, Touch of Evil and Tetro, Youth Without Youth, you know, many of the Coppola stuff. Uh, there's this interest, it's just an interesting to see all these people kind of gelling together now and then becoming kind of some of these the big deal folks later. Man, I don't know how you saw this movie. I watched the Warner Archive DVD of it, and it was a terrible transfer. Whenever the color red showed up, it turned into little pixelated boxes. Ooh. They did a really bad job on it. I don't know why. Maybe it was just the disc I had, but it looked bad. I rented it from Amazon Prime, and so I streamed it, and the quality was okay. I wouldn't say it was it was great. It didn't look like like a like a restoration or HD or anything, but it looked okay. That did not happen whenever the color red showed up. Uh, yeah, Warner Archive is great for releasing a lot of movies. It's great that they make those titles available, but they put the minimal effort into it. Yeah, it's better than nothing. So. <laughs> What can you what can you do? This is gonna be sort of the last weird small movie of Coppola's. Because now we're gonna get into some big stuff and kind of stay there for a while. And he'll go back to making small things again much later. But like it's interesting, like the next movie we'll be covering is Patton, because he wrote Patton. And you can't get more big than that movie. That's like a pretty <laughs> it's a big Hollywood Oscar three winning. Hour, yeah, three hour war movie. And then I guess you could say that Godfather, in a way, is like smaller and that it's part of this new Hollywood, but it is still this sprawling epic. Like, we're going to get into like conversation and apocalypse now, and like his movies aren't going to be these intimate, small, experimental things until much later again. But, and at least he does go back to it. Uh, and that was one, of, it's interesting because that talking about him and Lucas, that was always one of his big complaints about George Lucas was that, and I read this recent ish, maybe I don't remember when. But, uh, but he was always like, George Lucas had such a brilliant mind and wanted to make, made these weird, artsy, experimental films. And then he worked his way up into Star Wars and never went back to doing these like kind of personal things. And he always wished that his pal George would go back to doing that. And Coppola does go back to doing that. Like the last many movies that Coppola's made has been these independent, uh, small, personal uh, films. So it is cool. They like here we are in 1969, and yes, he's going about to become one of the biggest filmmakers in the world. But then he's able later on to kind of be able to go back to his roots of making these sort of like homemade, personal, small, experimental films, which I think is hard. I think most filmmakers, when they break big, kind of stay there until they get like demoted <laughs> because their movies didn't do well, and then they make. Not back to art things, but more just like smaller stuff because that's all that 
Russell McKay he is allowed to make now or whoever, you know, like whatever filmmaker once made big things and now they're just like making some straight to video thing. But uh, Coppola by choice started making small things again decades later back to the roots of the rain people. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of see these, these, this journey we're going on of him going into these big movies. We're about to get into like the really important stuff that according to people, like the big important Hollywood stuff. And then we're gonna go back to this smaller thing later. Yeah, it, it always seemed to me, and I think we're about to see Coppola accidentally become a big, big influential filmmaker making huge Hollywood epics which it always seemed like hearing him talk about movies and this kind of stories he likes to tell, the stories he wants to tell. It's like, well, but that doesn't sound like, like the scale of The Godfather or Apocalypse Now when he's talking about just making like movies about people like interacting and having emotions. It just felt like, yeah, he did The Godfather and then became huge all the while wanting to tell these intensely intimate personal stories um so and that was one of the things that made me really want to do this go through his whole filmography was to see like how that happened how he accidentally became a huge hollywood director and to see if in those movies the um the experimental uh, personal filmmaker shows up in any of those movies because it was there the whole time because he came back to it, you know? Yeah, yeah he never went away. And I think when we say big Hollywood movies for him, it's a little different because like it's the seventies when it was people being allowed to do kind of personal bigger movies. Like you could get a movie like Taxi Driver, which is a bigger movie. Like that movie has a budget but it's dark and it's personal, it's weird, and it's not like anything else. And and these and that was the 70s was allowed to do that, where Hollywood was like, okay, we give up young people, like make the weird things you want to make. That's what people want. Like you can, that's how you get like a Nashville or these movies that couldn't could only exist in that weird little bubble uh, of the 70s, uh, where you can get a budget and real actors and win awards, but do the weird experimental thing you want to do. Within, within that. So I think like The Godfather, now that we're kind of looking at it all under this kind of eye that we're doing with this podcast, I think we'll notice in The Godfather right away the stuff that does feel experimental and different than just what a regular Hollywood movie was like. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's great. It's interesting that you keep hitting on the word experimental because one, this film totally is. Uh, Coppola didn't write a whole screenplay. He wrote basically an outline and took a small crew, including the cast and uh, uh, crew, and went on an actual road trip. And then he changed the script as they were driving across the country to fit where the location they were doing, the location they were at, and what the characters were doing. So they happened upon a parade. And so then Coppola quickly, like, writes in the parade and tells James Caan, like, hey, go out there, get in the parade. <laughs> and uh, James Caan said, like, he felt really embarrassed doing that. Like, he said, like, it's one thing for the director to say, like, hey, like, Jimmy, go, go get in the parade. 
and a different thing for me as an actor to crash a Veterans Day parade. <laughs> um, working in that improvisational sort of way of filmmaking is, is very Godardian. Like when you read about how Godard made Breathless and a lot of most anything he made, he would have sort of like a script that was a more of an outline or he would write the day before or the day of and just give new pages to the actors that day and be like, here's what we're doing now is this scene. And the actors had to quickly, you know, memorize lines and figure it out. And it's like, kind of add, like kind of bring the spontaneity to filmmaking that no studio system would have ever allowed to have that happen. And so we're definitely in a new way of, of looking at how to make movies where you don't have to have this rigid plan and then just kind of copy that plan that you can actually have the freedom to do whatever you want and just like in any art form. And it's very, it's very exciting. Like to me, this is like, I know it's trite, but I really like from 67 to like 83 is the most exciting years of movies to me always. Absolutely like agree. Absolutely agree. It will always be that way forever, no matter what. Like they're just like the most challenging and interesting and different. And they're really pushing. And this is for any country, not just America. And they're really just pushing like new ways of telling stories because the film is still pretty young. Like even now, it's like it hasn't been around that long compared to every other art form. Like movies are still like little kids. <laughs> like it's not even been, you know, 200 years yet at all, not even close. So it's like- It's really only been a hundred years since um, anything resembling what we would recognize as the movies. Like you go to a theater and sit there for like an hour and a half and watch a, watch a movie. Yeah. And so it's just like these people, like in couple included, just like, we're like, well, okay, movies before this were kind of like, you took like what a play was, but then you like added different angles and you, you kind of, you have this the studio system saying, this is how you make movies is this way, a wide shot, close up, whatever, and kind of the basic language of filmmaking. And then these people, from like Casavetes and Godard all the way through Coppola and Scorsese and, and all these people now in the 70s saying, no, no, you can do whatever you want. It's, it's no different than a painting or a song. Like you can take these tools and go wild with it and make a movie that's a road trip where you don't have a script and you throw an actor in a parade and do these crazy things. And it just sort of like opened the doors to doing any type of, of movie. So it's, it's really, I love, like even though this movie, I will never watch this movie again ever. I don't, I don't think I will either. I don't need to sit through it again. But it is exciting to see like, oh, these people are really trying to do something different. And, uh, and, that, and that to me is like so fun to watch happen. Um, there weren't a lot of, this movie did not do well financially. Uh, it got a lot of negative reviews. But a lot of those reviews were like, uh, they liked the style of it and they felt it was competently made they just didn't like the uh, the characters or the story or they weren't invested in them uh there was one uh guy named stephen farber who also didn't really like the rain people but said it was still significant because uh and i'm quoting him now the chance to fail with material too complex and too urgent to sort it all out at, at once is a luxury that filmmakers in Hollywood have never been able to afford. And if the fragmentation of the industry leads to more low budget independently made films, filmmakers may have that luxury again. So this guy didn't like the movie, 
but at least this movie got made in this way that movies had not been allowed to, uh, to have been made before. There was one positive review that I found, and it was from, you guessed it, Roger Ebert, who gives uh, the rain people, count them, four. Four yeah. stars. Four out of four? Yeah. Four out of four. He compares it a lot to Easy Rider, and he talks about both movies simultaneously. And I have to wonder if maybe his affection for Easy Rider is influencing how he is viewing the rain people. But hey, that's how we view movies, you know. One paragraph here I'm going to read, which I think really hits on what you've been touching on. Ebert says, as for Coppola and his world, it's difficult to say whether his film is successful or not. That's the beautiful thing about a lot of the new experimental Hollywood directors. They'd rather do interesting things and make provocative observations than try to outflank John Ford on his way to make the great American movie. <laughs> I think that's great. I remember in high school, and I won't say the person's name, but there was a guy in high school who was equally obsessed with films as me. And he was obsessed with John Ford and was obsessed with the rules of how to make a movie correctly. And would read, like would tell me like, this is how a conversation is supposed to be filmed. The camera's here and the camera's here. And this is how an action scene is supposed to be filmed. The camera's here, the camera's here. And I remember just being like, you're wrong. You can do anything. There are no rules. Like this is so stupid. Like, like there, there's no, like there's no correct way to make a movie. There is, if you want to make a certain type of regular thing, just like there's a right way to film a sitcom, I guess if you want like everybody in the world to like it or whatever boring thing, but like you can do anything and it doesn't, and you shouldn't be making a movie just to follow the rules and just to shoot it, it competently and make a thing that everyone understands like that is a wide shot and it's a close up. And it's great to be, and like a lot of movies that are experimental, like I don't really like any Godard movies. I don't actually like them that much. Like there's a few. But I do respect them, and I respect that he was always trying to do something new and different and not try to follow the supposed rules. And, and that is exciting. Like, it's exciting to see somebody do something different and do something that's very much their own thing. Like, Coppola went out there and made his own weird thing. And I don't think he ever thought, this is going to be a huge hit. This is going to make me rich. This is going to be my keys to the kingdom. <laughs> like, I think he just had a movie within him that he had to, and like we talked about this at Finney's Rainbow, like this is the movie he was trying to make for years and was like kept trying to figure out how to make his own weird little thing. And then he did, which is great because like it's, it is very hard to make a movie. Even a weird low budget, nothing movie is challenging and it takes a lot of work. So good for him <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so far I wouldn't stop anyone from watching this movie. Uh, despite the fact that I didn't care for it much, but I did like enough about it stylistically that I'm still invested in this filmmaker. Like starting with like, you're a big boy now. I really like that. I was surprised by the style and the story. I like the energy. All right, what's this guy got next? It's Finian's Rainbow, this kind of standard Hollywood production. And it's kind of weird, but a little interesting, but mostly weird and not successful. And then this is him back to his own style, doing really what he wants, wholly written by him, not based on a book or anything. It's based on a short story that he wrote in college. Yeah, my reaction would be like, 
well, I didn't like that, but I can't wait for his next movie. <laughs> and that's a good sign. It's always sad when you see a movie and you're like, I'm never going to watch a movie by this person ever again. <laughs> Rob Zombie, I'm done with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. I can see that you're going to keep doing something interesting. Like, I think truly great artists, even their failures, are still good. Like, it's still, it's still exciting to watch a movie that doesn't work by someone who is very creative and interesting. So, and I think Coppola, we'll see that again with him. Like I, he's always been interesting, even when people were done with him, even when his movies weren't making money, uh, even when no one was looking, like he never stopped trying to do something different and interesting still. So we'll see what it's like with Patton, the movie he wrote. Back to Hollywood screenwriter Coppola. Um, yeah, and I guess this is a good example of how it is to be a screenwriter, a working screenwriter in Hollywood, not a writer director, but as guy that's get hired that gets hired to write a movie. Like, okay, I wrote it. Here it is. Give me my money. And he wrote that screenplay in 1966 or 67, like right after "Is Paris Burning," because there was that one scene with Patton. And so they hired Fox then hired him to write Patton. And then four years later, Patton the movie finally comes out. Have you seen Patton? Uh, I watched it once when I was a kid with my dad. I was maybe like 10 or younger. I haven't seen it since. I'm excited to hear what you think. It's funny because I saw it probably a year ago. So now I got to sit through this three hour movie again for a podcast, even though I just watched it. Yeah. But my memory's bad, so I need to go through it again. But luckily, it's very good. So, hooray for us. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Is there anything else I feel we've covered it? Um, yeah, just uh, to be clear about how it all doesn't work out. Um, spoilers, because we haven't spoiled it yet. But... Uh, James Caan, Killer Kilgannon, dies at the end of this movie. Uh, Robert Duvall's about to rape Shirley Knight. Uh, Killer bursts in there, they fight, and the fight is filmed really well. It's intercut with flashbacks of football games that uh, that Killer was in, and then a lot of tight close-ups, like chaotic close-ups of faces. And uh, Robert Duvall's daughter, fearing for his safety, grabs his service revolver and shoots, uh, shoots James Caan like three or four times, like a lot, you know? She only had to shoot him once to get him to stop, but she shot him a lot. And then Shirley Knight hugs James Caan, he dies and the movie just ends abruptly. And since this, was, this is a late 60s movie, all the credits came at the beginning. So it's just death, boom. The end. Movie stops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Okay. Well, I'm excited to get back into Studio System Patton next time. And I think since we're stuck at home and I'm doing literally nothing, uh, we'll have these come out more frequently than we've been doing. You know, I think we'll be able to be more on top of uh, doing these episodes. Because what else are we what else am I doing? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Me neither. We have time to watch a three-hour movie. It's great. 
This is yeah, great. That, Batman and the Godfather. We get nothing but time to watch these long ass movies. Yeah, three hour watching a three hour movie is only part of our day now, as opposed to the one thing we carve out time for. <laughs> great. Okay. Well, I guess we'll see everyone next time when we do Patton. Yeah. Um, so everyone stay safe out there, stay socially distanced and wash your hands and, uh, you know, we'll just have to keep recording in mono until, uh, until this all blows over, but we will keep on because all we got now is time and movies. Yep. I'm, I'm excited. That's all I ever wanted. Yep. I feel like Burgess Meredith in that Twilight Zone episode, but my glasses are working. <laughs> it turns out you were just farsighted, so you can still read. <laughs> Twist. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody, and we'll talk. We'll talk about this next time. All right. Um, we're on the internet on Twitter uh, at the Director's Wall. Email us uh, directorswall at gmail dot com. Uh, if you are sad about the news about Vulcan video. So are we, and we thank you for your sympathies and stopping by and for supporting us for as long as you did. Maybe we'll share some memories later once, uh, once the sting has worn off. Yeah, and wherever you live in the world, support your local video store if you're lucky enough to have one. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people, how many new members we signed up, even right up until, uh, right up until our, our, our final few weeks that didn't know we were around. It was, we were totally brand new discovery for them. So you say that your town doesn't have a local, you don't have a local video store. Maybe you maybe, do. Maybe you do. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thanks everybody. Stay safe and uh, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully we'll go outside sometime soon. But until then, we're gonna keep watching movies and talking about them. Yes, and so we will see you on the battlefield, you magnificent bastards, for Patton. <laughs> <laughs>